finished the book of Acts last week. David did. Uh, Acts 28, there's 28 chapters in the book. The very last verse is, is the ending, but it's an odd ending. He noted that. Many people have noted it. Here's how it ends. Talking about Paul. He lived there two whole years at his own expense, and he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So that, that's great, and that's faithful, and that's what you expect to read about the ministry of Paul. He is bold, he preaches, but that's not an ending. What happened after those two years? Did Paul ever go to trial in Rome? Was he acquitted? Was he convicted? Was he executed? Did he make it to Spain? When did he die? How did he die? Now, we have some history that can fill in some of those blanks, and you can read some of his uh, letters written from prison and fill in some blanks. But Luke, who is a first-rate historian, doesn't fill in any of those blanks for you. He, he just leaves us hanging at the end of the book. Contrast that with, for example, Genesis. Joseph is the main character for 13 out of the last 14 chapters of the book of Genesis. The book doesn't end until Joseph dies. Genesis 50, verse 26. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now that's an ending. When, when, when you've got main characters in a story, you expect some kind of closure. How did things end up? The same thing happens in Deuteronomy. The, the five books of Moses in Deuteronomy is listed fifth, the way we, we catalog them. Um, Deuteronomy 34 doesn't end until Moses dies. He, he was the man. He was the one that God was working through, and the book doesn't end until he passes. So the ending of the book should resolve in some fashion what's happening with the main character, but it doesn't happen in Acts. And I think Luke's telling us something. We, we know that Peter was prominent in the first half of the book. Paul's prominent in the second half of the book. But, but what if Luke is telling us this isn't about what certain men were doing. This is about what the Holy Spirit was doing through certain men. Peter will die. Paul will die. The Spirit never dies, and the mission never dies. I think the very first verse of Acts points us in that direction. Luke opened the book of Acts with this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began, began. You hear that word, you know, well, something, what, what did he continue to do? All that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So the Gospel of Luke, what he here calls his first book, records what Jesus began to do and teach. The second book, volume two of Luke's collected works, if you will, it's the book of Acts. It picks up where the gospel left off and chronicles what Jesus continued to do. He began it in the gospels. He continues it in Acts, except he's doing it through his spirit in his apostles. And so the book doesn't end when the apostles die because the work doesn't end. His spirit doesn't stop working. Um, what we find Paul doing at the close of Acts, proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, what we find him doing isn't just what Paul should be doing. 
That's what we're called to do. It's not a uniquely apostolic calling to say, let me tell you about Jesus. It's a Christian calling. And so I think there's an intentional non-ending to the book of Acts because you don't want to close it and say, okay, what's next? You want to look at it and say, what's next? And what's next is you. What's next is the church. What's next is evangelism and church history and faithful people continuing on the work that, that Jesus began to do in the Gospels, continued to do through his spirit in the book of Acts, and now is doing through his church everywhere. Many of you know that there's a church planting organization called Acts 29. That's why they chose that name. They know there's only 28 chapters. They also know that the last chapter is not supposed to be an ending. It's supposed to move on, continue on. So they chose a name for church planning, for raising up churches that I think is absolutely spot on perfect, Acts 29. So that they raise up faithful Christians, faithful churches that will be doing exactly what Paul was doing. Proclaiming the kingdom, teaching the people about Jesus. So nobody who knows what Jesus was actually about that he wasn't just going to say, well, I'll, I'll be here for 30 years, then I'll work through these folks in another 30 years, and, and then we're done. Nobody who knows what he was actually about, like this gospel will be preached to all nations and then the end will come, nobody should have expected Acts to end. It, it, it's actually a somewhat predictable structure in the book once you think about what Jesus is doing and telling us. It was never merely about those men and women in the book of Acts. Jesus says, I will build my church. And he's still building it. So the story lives on. The proclamation of the king and his kingdom lives on. And so now we want to transition from Acts into Matthew 28, uh, in what is commonly referred to as the Great Commission, and, and see what the story tells about how the story is supposed to live on through us. Uh, the choice of the text from David's he was going to be standing up here and preaching on the Great Commission uh, when he took ill. Uh, he said, you can preach on that if you want, or you can pick anything else that you want. I think it's important that we stick with this, because I, I know what's coming next week. And you want to be here next week. And I think the Great Commission is an appropriate um, introduction to, uh, to what David will be talking to us about a week from today. It's a familiar passage all of us probably and, and sometimes it's easy to kind of zone out a little bit both in reading and in listening when a passage is so familiar but I know that it's not just familiar I know two more things about it I know familiar is not the same as obeyed you can know a whole lot of scripture and not necessarily obey very much of it truth be told if we wrote down all that we knew to do and then checked off what we were actually doing with some faithfulness and regularity, there may not be as many check marks as you think. We know more than we do. That's one thing I know. So familiar isn't always observed. It's, it's why people like R.C. Sproul, Mark Dever, uh, who's the other gentleman? Um, Michael Horton, write entire books. In fact, Sproul wrote two of them on the Great Commission. They, they take those three verses and write 200-page books on it. Because they say you're not getting the point by reading just those three verses. We need to pound it home. And so they write books. It's why both Steve Saint, his dad was Nate Saint, he was the pilot 
for Jim Elliott, the missionaries that were killed in, in Ecuador in 1956. Um, Steve has carried on that work. That's why Steve and Dallas Willard wrote books with the identical title, The Great Omission. Not commission, omission. Because they see how much we're not doing. How such a familiar text is not necessarily a text that we have applied. So that's one reason. It can be familiar. We still need to hear it again. The second reason that I wanted to stick with such a familiar passage is that when I study to preach, I always, always see something new and something glorious and something challenging and encouraging. That's just the word of God. He is infinitely wise and infinitely creative. And when you look at his word, you will discover you're not done looking at his word. There is so much there. I hope a few minutes in Matthew will encourage you the way it encouraged me. The Great Commission is sometimes confined only to, to verses 18 through 20 of, uh, of Matthew's uh, gospel. Um, but I think there's good reason to back up a couple verses and get the context, which is important. So I'm going to read it again, starting in verse 16 of Matthew 28. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Verse 16 tells us that the 11 disciples are in Galilee, where Jesus told them to go. He's about to give them commands concerning spreading the gospel, continuing the work. But he makes them travel all the way from Jerusalem to Galilee to do so. Why couldn't he tell them in Jerusalem? I don't know how long it takes to walk from Jerusalem to Galilee, but it's a couple of days at least, and you are walking. Why have them go there? What difference does the location make? Why does Luke even record the fact that this happened in Galilee? I think there's two really neat reasons. One is, Jesus began his ministry in Galilee. If you were to go back to the early chapters, chapter 4 basically is where it would start, uh, of Jesus ministering, it says he withdrew into Galilee. That's where he calls his first disciples. That's where he goes up on the mountain and gives what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. His public ministry began in Galilee. He's handing off that public ministry to his hand-picked disciples in Galilee. There's a beauty and a symmetry to it, some symbolism to it that would not have been lost on them. There's that, and maybe even more important. In Matthew 4.15, again, as Jesus' ministry is just getting started, Matthew quotes Isaiah, and he tells us that Galilee is known as Galilee of the Gentiles. If you wanted a more literal translation, it would be Galilee of the ethnicities. Because Gentiles there is ethne. We get the word ethnic from it. Common word. We all know what ethnic means. Plural. So it's ethnicities. It's Galilee of the ethnicities. Many, many peoples from many countries, from many backgrounds, from many languages gathered in Galilee. 
that was known as Gentile territory. So he takes his Jewish disciples, they're very Jewish, and he brings them into Gentile territory in order to have a fit place to tell them, I want you to go to all nations. And by the way, when you see nations in the New Testament, virtually always it is ethne. Same word as Gentiles. Go to Galilee of the ethne, and then go to all ethne. It doesn't show up very well in the English. It's absolutely clear in, in the Greek. He's doing this for a reason. He took them to a place that was a melting pot of the ancient world in that area. There's Samaritans, there's Greeks, there's Romans, there's Jews. Um, there, there's countless other ethnic groups. And he said, I want you to make disciples of them all. When you hear nations, and th th this is where our English translations don't help us much. When you hear nations, if you're like me, your, your default is to think of Japan, Colombia, Brazil, Germany, England, whatever. It's, it's geographical, political entities. It's not what a nation is in the Bible. A nation, because remember in, in Revelation, I saw gathered up people from every people, tribe, tongue, and nation. They're, they're, they're divided by what language they speak, and not only what language they speak, even what dialect of that language. You want to feel out of place? Go from New York to Alabama, or vice versa. They'll know you're not from here. Remember, Jesus' disciples, when, when, when Peter tries to conceal the fact that he knows Jesus during the time of his trial, they say, don't try to deny it. We know your accent. You're from Galilee. So nations is not a helpful translation. Ethnicities is what counts, and that's what Jesus is commanding. In India, for example, today, we know we can draw the, the outlines of India. They've got their, their prime minister, they've got their parliament, they've got all those things that identify them as what we think of as a nation. Within the nation of India are 2,000 ethnicities. 2,000. Divided by culture class, race, divi divided by language, divided by caste. You can plant a church in India and you still have 1,999 more to plant if you want to reach every nation in India because not all of them are going to go. Most of them won't go. So we just need to know that. when Because otherwise we might think, you know, the Great Commission, didn't we kind of finish that? There's what, about 250 countries on the globe? There's at least one church in every one of those countries. Might be true. But that's not what Jesus is commanding. Go to all the ethnicities, all the different tribes and tongues and people and languages. The gospel needs to be preached to each one of them. And then something, I, I said that I enjoy studying even familiar passages because you always see something new. Here's something new I thought. I, I thought it was cool. I told my wife. She thought it was cool. I'll let you judge. Um, he gathered them on a mountain. Do you remember when Jesus, or when, when Satan was tempting Jesus? Last temptation was to take him up on a mountain. Look at all the nations of the world. All the kingdoms of the world. Fall down and worship me and they can be yours. And Jesus says, be gone rebukes him. Jesus is again on a mountain. 
here's all the nations of the world spread out. And he tells his disciples, go get them. They will worship me. I I love the symmetry when you see that. There's something going on there that's fun. Verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now I get the worship. I don't get the doubt. Because it can't be, is this really Jesus? He's been resurrected for about seven weeks now, six weeks, I think. They've been with him most of that time. When they did have doubts, is it really him? Put your hand in my side. Look at the wounds. Don't be disbelieving, but believing. And Thomas, the one who had expressed, hey, i got to see this for myself, says, my Lord and my God. The issue of his identity and the issue that he had been raised from the dead was settled over a month ago. And they've been with him most of that time. So the doubt cannot be who he is. They know that they're in the presence of the risen Christ, which is why they're worshiping. You don't worship someone that you're not quite sure who they are. So what are they doubting? If it's not who Jesus is, and the fact that he really has been raised from the dead, I think they're doubting. Because they know why they're on the mountain. They know what he's about to do. He's about to hand off the ministry to them. They've been apprentices now for three years. But the master's leaving. Here it is, guys. Win them all. Go to every nation. And I think the doubt reflects the fact that they know it's coming. And they know he's going. And they are wondering if they're up to the task. Put yourself in their place for a moment. It would be one thing to witness boldly for Christ to go to the towns that he sent them to and then come back and he's there. He's waiting for you. And you can tell him about the great victory that people believed or you can say they stoned me. I, got, I was lucky to get out of there with my life, but he's there. And you get to tell him and be with him. You get to be physically with the one who calms the sea, cleanses lepers, casts out demons, feeds 5,000, raises the dead, and you get to come back to him, rejoicing that even the demons are subject to you in his name. So this master who called you, taught you, corrected you, encouraged you, empowered you, sent you out, he's leaving. And he's leaving you with the task of witnessing to a world that often will not like what you've been training for three years to tell them. He's leaving you behind to witness to a world that just crucified him a month ago. So do you feel it a little bit? Are you eager to see him go? Are you just full of confidence? Oh, you can leave. We got this, Jesus. Or are you saying, don't leave? We don't have this. We need you. We still sing the song 2,000 years later. We need you. The doubt mentioned here is almost certainly a doubt that they can carry on without Jesus in their midst. And I'll even claim a level of certainty for that because that exact word doubt in our text is only used one other time in the New Testament. And it's used by Matthew. And it's used in a context that I think gives us great insight that this is exactly what's going on. 
The setting is the Sea of Galilee, so they're in the same area. Um, it's the middle of the night. The disciples are in the boat. They've been rowing for some time. The wind is against them. The waves are high. And Jesus, Jesus comes walking to them, but they don't know it's Jesus. They think it's a ghost, and they are frightened. We pick up in Matthew 14, 27. Jesus says, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Same exact words. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. What was Peter doubting? That he could do it. He'd taken a step or two, and then he looked at the circumstances and says, I don't think I can do this. And Jesus starts to sink. Why did you doubt? So there's worship and doubt in the same setting, in the same boat. There's worship and doubt on the same mountain, the same setting, and I think it's the same doubt. Will we be overcome by the wind and the waves? Will we be overcome by Herod? Will we be overcome by opposition? Can we do this? In the context of that kind of doubt, the assurances that we're about to see, assurances that Jesus has all authority and that he will be with them always, take on kind of a fresh meaning and a fresh glory, don't they? I, I always believe, if, if you're not quite sure what they're asking or what the situation is, look at what Jesus says and does. Because he's relevant. It's not irrelevant to just jump in and say, I've got all authority. But it's relevant if they say, I know you're doubting. I know you're not sure you can do this. I have all authority, and I'll always be with you. Verse 28. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's the answer to their doubt. That's the answer to their fears. And, and we haven't even really unpacked all the additional ones that they might have. They've been told, you know how they treated the prophets? They're going to do the same thing to you. You know how they treated the master? Don't think the servants are going to have it any better. They have an idea what's coming, and they're right. They'll get thrown in prison. Some of them will be killed. Many of them will be killed. Jesus had warned them. And so all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. It's meant to address that concern, at least. Whatever fears they have, whatever doubts they have, are they going to be mistreated? Jesus has authority over kings. He has authority over governors. If you want to bring in a little bit more contemporary things that, that I'm watching the news right now, he's got authority over presidents and senates and school boards. He has all authority. Will they get sick? Each generation has their own version of a pandemic. Life on the road is hard. Will they be robbed? Will they be killed on the way? Will the devil just simply oppress them? 
and make life impossible. He rules over the devil. He cannot touch them. He cannot touch you unless he has specific permission from God that will only be for your good in the end and for his glory. And are they worried that no one's going to listen to them? Jesus is a big attraction, folks. The the apostles aren't, not so much. Jesus has been the big attraction. Will people listen? Or will their ministry be utterly ineffective and just fall flat on its face? He has all authority over human hearts. He has the right to take out a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. He has the right to take our stubborn blindness and our stubborn deafness where we're just like a little kid who doesn't want to hear. He has the right to open our eyes and to open our ears. We need to remember that when we are attempting to obey the Great Commission, we're attempting something that is humanly impossible calling dead people to life. Some of you have heard stories of homiletics professors, they're the people that that teach seminary students how to preach, taking their class to a cemetery and then saying, wake them up. It's impossible. I mean, that's their point. You can't do it. But Jesus can go to a cemetery, he can go to a tomb, and the person's been in there three days, they are dead, his sisters say he smells, And he can say, Lazarus, come forth. And he comes forth. All power, all authority has been given to Jesus Christ. And if that were not true, I would give up praying. And you probably should too. Why pray to someone who can't act? Why pray for the salvation of someone or the salvation of a city if God doesn't have the right to act on the hearts of the people of that city. He has all authority and all right to change whomever he will. For those who are doubting that they're up to the task that they're being given, are concerned that their head might be the next one on Herod's chopping block, there are a few promises as comforting as this one. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Doesn't mean they won't kill you. It means they cannot kill you until God wants you called home. Pilate thought he had authority over Jesus. In John 19, we read, You will not speak to me, this is Pilate. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. That was Pilate's hour. That was the devil's hour. And that hour's over. Jesus now has all authority. We live, we die, we see great fruit, or we get stoned by the mob, as Jesus wills. If I go down, I want to go down knowing he is in absolute control of all things. A 
sparrow doesn't fall to the ground apart from his will and he said oh by the way you are worth more than a sparrow for doubting disciples I know of no words that could hold more assurance verse 19 go therefore and make disciples of all nations all ethnies baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you I know that none of you came in here this morning looking for a grammar lesson. Um, but bear with me for just a moment because there's something really important here. Go, in verse 19, is often preached as a command, an imperative. And it sounds in English like command. Go. Go. It's not a command. Commands are in the imperative. This is a participle. In English, it's the words that we add ing to the end. Literal translation would be going. Well, who cares? Seriously. We should, and I'll tell you why. Even in the Great Commission, a place where you'd expect that command, the foundation has already been laid for so long and so clearly that Christians and disciples are to go that he doesn't command them to go here. He just assumes they're going, which is why it's a participle. If you want a rough translation or um, um, a paraphrase, it would be this. I have all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, as you are going to all these nations, make disciples. And that's your imperative. It is not go. That's assumed. The command is make disciples. And all those books that I referenced earlier where... Um, where people are writing on this particular text because they say that the church isn't getting it, one of their main points is this. You're not called to make converts. You're called to make disciples, and there is a difference. He gives us three indications. They're not the only ones, but they're three in the text of what it means to actually make disciples. Baptize them, keep teaching them, and call them to obedience for what they've learned. Let's see them one at a time. That's the first thing Jesus says. I want you to go make disciples and baptize them in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you just want another bullet in your gun for the Trinity, one name, three gods. Um, three, uh, uh, let, let that go. <laughs> Don't let me go down the road of Trinity right now. But it is a singular name, one name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Call those disciples to commit, because that's what disciples do. They commit publicly. They get baptized. They get buried with Christ in the water and then raised to newness of life. They get asked questions. Do you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior? And they need to answer yes. Now, we don't baptize them. Um, are you resolving with God helping you to walk in obedience? answer yes or we won't baptize them and I've never baptized anybody privately and I cannot imagine the context in which I would because this is supposed to be a public declaration disciples stand up and are counted they identify that's one the next thing that marks a disciple and that Jesus says to do is you teach them and they're hungry for teaching they want to know more tell me more I, I knew a man an older man dear brother I love him. He's gone to be with the Lord. He showed up at a Bible study 
uh, for a year or two. Uh, this is almost 30 years ago now. And uh, he knew one Bible verse. Proverbs 3, 4, and 5. Trust in the Lord of all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your steps. And any time you wanted to talk about something from Romans or Isaiah, he would quote Proverbs. Say, I don't need to know it. I'm just trusting him to guide my steps. That's not discipleship. Disciples learn. Disciples have their minds sharpened. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so we teach, and they learn, and that marks disciples. And they're not only learners, they're doers. That's what the word observe means. Jesus is warning us, don't just teach them a bunch of things. Lead them in obedience to actually put them into action, to do it, to follow in obedience, to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. There is a difference between people who say they believe and true disciples. And the difference is this. Disciples observe. They attempt to do what they've been commanded. They won't do it perfectly. None of us does. There'll be failures. There's going to be a lot of getting up and starting over. A lot of grace needed. But a disciple is marked by his determination or her determination to get up again and continue on the path of obedience to Jesus Christ. So make disciples, call people to commitment, baptize them, teach them, lead them to obedience. Sound hard? It's not hard. It's impossible. Because you can't change their heart. But with God, with the Savior who has all authority in heaven and on earth, it becomes possible. You all know the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus, and you can just imagine the disciples' excitement. A millionaire just showed up, and he can foot all the bills for our ministry. He's rich. He's respected. He dresses well. He'll give some credibility to this ministry. But he loved his money. And at the end of the day, he left. And Jesus commented how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples said, well, then who can be saved? If that guy can't be saved, who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So you are called to do an impossible task. Evangelism and missions is an impossible task that only God can do. But he does it through the church. And he does it through his people. And finally, verse 20, the end of verse 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. A moment ago, I said that make disciples was the imperative in the text. And it is the imperative. It is the main point. But it's not the only imperative. There's one more, and it's right here. Behold is an imperative. You know what behold means? Look at me. Pay attention. Fix your eyes on me. This is the last command of Jesus recorded by Matthew. And think on this. This last command is not do this, don't do that, get busy with this. Here's his last command. Look at me. I am with you. If you're doubting, 
If you don't know you're up for the task because you're not, because it's impossible, what more do you need to hear than I am with you to the end of the age? It's just, it's so amazing that he ended this way. And it's even more amazing when you realize it's how Matthew opened his gospel. If you go all the way back to Matthew 123, this is the first Old Testament quotation. Matthew, I think, quotes the Old Testament more than any of the other gospel writers. This is the very first one he puts before the readers. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Before Matthew records a single command, single word of correction from Jesus, an exhortation, anything to do, he says, he's with you. His name is Emmanuel. When he's all done and he's sending them out, what does he say? He's with you to the end of the age. That's not an accident. The entire book of Matthew is bracketed by a promise that God is with you. So as we're called to be faithful, to make disciples, to do impossible things and call dead men to live and blind men to see and deaf men to hear and go to places where they don't want you to go because guess what? All the places that they want you to come are already taken. The only places left to go with rare exception are places where they don't want you. And if they find out what you're doing, it may not go well for you. And yet we're told go because they too are a people and a nation. So we're called to do something impossible. We're called to do something dangerous. We need to know two things. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth and he will be with us to the very end. Those are the two assurances Jesus gives his worshiping, doubting disciples on a mountain in Galilee. It's those same two assurances that he gives his worshiping, doubting saints that are gathered on the corner of Boynton Beach Boulevard and Seacrest. It's for you, and it's for me. Normally, we would kind of break off now and, and really start some application and say, here's how we're going to put this to work. But the reality is that's for next week. That's for David to explain. But I'll, I'll just share this. Our family's been here 11, a little over 11 years. Um, we came from a very missions-minded background. I won't tell you all the details, but it was exciting. And we came here, and we found other people that really, really cared about missions as well. They knew this stuff. They wanted to obey this stuff. And the church, for quite a while, has been fighting just to pay the bills. And so resources to do some of the things that, that you might right now be feeling called to do just weren't there. I haven't been there for a long time. But I knew the heart of the people. I knew the heart of the staff. And, and so we said, let's wait this out. Because I think the ship's going to turn. And we're going to see a renewed focus in missions, a renewed focus in evangelism and outreach. And God, in typical God fashion, waits for a pandemic where we can't meet. Waits for a turnover in staff where churches generally shrink for a while. Waits till... The wind is against us in every conceivable way to grow the church and increase our budget. And he's done it. 
for those of you that follow it, you know that he is just meeting our needs above and beyond. And now the, the, the question isn't, how can we do this? The question becomes, how can we not do this? How can we not start dreaming bigger and further and in line with the great commission that we've been given? But if I say any more, I'll be stealing thunder from David, and I don't want to do that. So let's pray, and we will close in worship. Father God, I thank you that, um, that you have all power and all authority. You've given it to your son, who right now has all power and all authority. And he's with us. He's with us in the person of his spirit, and he will never leave us. And so what is impossible becomes possible. In fact, it goes beyond possible to certain. When Paul was in Corinth and scared, you came to him in a vision in the night and said, keep on preaching. Do not be afraid. I have many people in this city. Father, your son has many people in this city. This is our Jerusalem. Florida is our Judea. The United States is, is, is our uh, Samaria. And then we have the ends of the earth. Lord, we, we pray for big dreams. We pray for obedient dreams. And we pray that you'll meet us in those dreams. Your power, your authority, and your personal presence. We thank you that you will do these things in Jesus' name.